Hi, my name is Nicole J. Georges. I'm a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist staying in Los Angeles, California with my half-blind chihuahua, Ponyo Georges. <laughs> this is our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Today on Sagittarian Matters, producer Ponyo threatens to ruin an entire episode by barking while I talk with punk director and writer Silas Howard. Stay tuned. Silas Howard is an award-winning director, writer, and a professional punk. You may know him as a director from the show Transparent, as a member of the band Tribe 8, co-writer, director, and star of the film by Hook or by Crook, or more. He's also a documentarian, and he directed a Peaches video. I spoke to Silas at his home in Los Angeles the day after he was on a panel about trans representation in the media. We referenced this panel a couple of times in the interview. Also during the interview, our dogs barked like maniacs on the other side of the door. I almost called the dog catcher, and we do reference this as well. Please enjoy my talk with Silas Howard. Silas Howard. Nicole Georges. Welcome to Sagittarian Matters. It's so ex- it's so great to be here. Thank you. Part of my therapeutic practice is I can't I'm not allowed to give unsolicited advice. I only give unsolicited advice. Well, so now I have to solicit advice from people, and then that's when I'm allowed to give them feedback. Oh, good workaround. You know, it's it is a good workaround because I have that instinct. I have that feeling. Like I love to tell everybody what to do. Like, just give me an opportunity. Like, I didn't you didn't even know it was broken. Yeah. Take my advice. I'm not using it. I'm here to fix it. Yeah. All right, the most important thing we have to talk about is Nacho the Turtle. Oh, shit. Okay, so Silas, you didn't direct this episode. No, I did However, not direct this episode. However... What, so I should say, there's a television show called Transparent yeah. on Amazon. Mm, yep. And uh, in season three, the breakout star was this turtle <laughs> Nacho. named Nacho, who was the family turtle, ripped from the headlines, ripped from a the, story the, about a family... The genius of the writing team and Jill Soloway is that, yes, they ripped from... And ripped then, from the headlines, a turtle was lost and found in the family's home like 20 yeah. years later. So will you please tell me your relationship with Nacho the turtle? Okay, so I met Nacho back in... Um, I met, so, Nacho and I... Yes, Oh, where do I even start? Where do I even start? What do you want to know? Narrow, I want to know. Narrow down when did the... you? Did you said? Did you just storyboard this? Yeah. So I, um, I worked. I, I directed episode two and episode four, um, but I got the like amazing opportunity to stay on for the whole first four and lend support because Jill was directing the other episodes and with the writers rewriting the. The scripts, as they do, they take these beautiful scripts and they're like, how can we make it better? And I'm like, I don't know. How can you? And they make it better. It's just an incredible process that they do. Um, and, uh, but so that this section was originally in um, uh, the episode that I was directing. So I did storyboard and sort of get to plan out this journey of Nacho through the walls of the house 
And so we got to do um, build the walls. We got to work with four nachos. Four turtles. Four turtles. Of different ages. Got to work with a tortoise. Oh, tortoises. Got to work with a tortoise wrangler. Um, I will tell you that they're vegetarian. Wait, what was the tortoise wrangler like? He was hardworking. He was so hard. He was sweating. Okay, so we had one hall, like a little wall that was built, and we had a vent. Yeah. Because we got these, like, in film there are things like CU is close-up, and MCU is medium close-up, and OTS is over the shoulder, but we had over-the-shell OTS shots. So we had to get this, we had to get Nacho <laughs> to the vent to get our OTS shot of various stages of the Pfeffermans through the 20 Over years. the shell! Over the shell! To shell and back. To shell and back. It's just no end of, <laughs> of, of riches. Um, so then the... Um, but, you know, to get, a, to get a tortoise, and it was just a great, like, small, almost like a second unit shot. You know, it's just, um, you know, working, and uh, we're all just waiting around for Nacho to make, make their big move. I don't know what gender they were. And, um, but the butt, meanwhile, so yeah. I was like, hey, can they, um, you're good. Okay. Can, you know, we, we really want Nacho to eat a bug right here because it's kind of symbolic of like this blah, blah, blah. And, and he was like, oh, they're vegetarian. He goes, but I can take some banana mash and kind of put like a bug in it. Not a real bug. I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to sound like I non-consensually made a tortoise eat a bug. Yeah. But, um, so we wanted Nacho to walk down the, the vent, munch on a bug and look. And, um, and the, so because they're vegetarian, the ways that you can, you know, entice a tortoise to walk this way is to wave, um, green, like kale, a kale's not just, uh, you know, for hipsters and eat banana and blow banana breath through the vent. So he was running back and forth between waving the green lettuces and kale and then running over and eating banana and blowing it through. And he was sweating and, and Nacho was just like slowly one foot in front of the other. And Nacho delivers. Nacho gets to the vent, um, reaches down, eats the bug. There's like banana mash all over Nacho's mouth. It's, you know, exactly yeah. what we want. Yeah. And then Nacho looks out the vent. And then we're like, okay, Nacho, now they're blowing pot smoke through the vent. Nacho looks up, blinks, like reacting to the smoke. I don't know. It was a very, I think it was Nacho 3 was really just hitting, hitting their marks. But it was incredible to work with Wranglers. Because it also is like, sets a weird tone. Like in second season, I worked with a cat Wrangler for the Cherry Jones and Gabby Hoffman scene. Uh -huh. After the um, hot tub. Was there a lesbian cat there? There was a cat Wrangler. Okay. And maybe there was a lesbian cat. I don't, yeah, there were two. Two lesbian cats. So, But the thing is, in order to get the cats to behave on set, you have to get really quiet and, like, barely move and do these, like, ch -ch -ch sounds. And, like, so they set the mood for the whole set. Everyone's, like... The cat? Yeah, everyone's moving really slow. And then the cat's, like, at one point really angry and, like, batting Gabby Hoffman in the face with its tail. But then it does. It, like, crosses... And then it, on the second take, it crosses the same way. But it just set this mood, you know, in terms of, like, how slow... Whereas for dog wranglers, they have to do the opposite. They have to be like, peanut butter, peanut butter, peanut butter. Look over here, yeah. look over here, look over yeah. here. So anyway, love it. It's a, it's a whole thing. It's a whole spiritual... Working uh, with animals? Yeah, yeah. It's, a whole, it's on a whole other spiritual level. Is that what I'm meant to do in Hollywood? I think <laughs> this is what I'm... I'm, I'm this is what you're getting at? Yeah.
When you told me that that banana breath job existed, I was like, I think that I found my place in Hollywood. It's kind of an amazing thing. I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing here. Yes. As I'm supposed to be chewing up banana and blowing it towards a tortoise. To motivate an OTS shot. To motivate an over-the-shell shot. <laughs> uh, how, do you, how do you like working for a transparent? I fucking love it. Can we, I swear on a podcast? Yeah, you can swear on a podcast. I fucking love it. Fucking awesome. It's, um, I mean, you... We were doing that panel last night, but yeah. I, um, oh, I'm just, yeah, I love it on so many levels. Where, what, where should I start? I don't know. Will you tell me about the Apple box thing? Oh, yeah. So there's an amazing thing that Jill, I, I visited set season one and I saw her just organically do it so I can understand the evolution of it is that she started the day with a, you know, a, a moment of gratitude. Yeah. Um, thanking everybody that they, you know, and then appreciating that they get to do this. They get to make art together and they get to work together. And what a, what a, what a privilege that is. And, and what a, what a, and how grateful she is. And I just, I just thought, oh, that's such a good talk about setting a tone. Yeah. She was like a human wrangler. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, season two, I don't think, you know, season two, it was like new, you know, folding in a new process of bringing in this whole thing around Berlin and bringing in new directors. And so um, there was certainly like a lot of, of creative process. Like we we did collaging for storyboard and there was just like explore, like just play. Like I remember Jeffrey Tambor in season three was like, oh, when I watch my kids, they'll like make something and destroy it. Like they're playing, you know, the spirit of play. Yeah. Um, that it's work. Kids are working at play, but they're also not precious about it. Yeah. Um, so then by season three, um, it became a, a, a sort of ritual that would not be passed by. It didn't matter how big a day we had. Uh, an apple box, uh, which evolved into like a little stage that was like the size of four apple boxes, um, would get pulled to the middle and everyone would start chanting, box, 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 box. And um, two people would be tagged from crew the day before. So maybe... You know, the camera assistant, camera operator, wardrobe, uh, cast member, two people would start and then anyone would be invited and you kind of wait and give a moment and people who had maybe first day on set would jump up, background would jump up. Um, it was really just a spirit of permission and um, people would tell really moving stories. I mean, I would get, I would get teared up a bunch of times and just like to have a show that's trying to give voice to uh, you know, typically otherized people, then is, that's actually giving voice on set to people in the crew is is a, is really profound. It's moving, and it would be you know, it just remind us that we're all human. We'd look at each other, and then we'd start our day, and it would just feel like perspective. You know, I think in film and the high stakes, you can lose perspective, and, and it feels like life or death, but it's not. I mean, it's it's really it can be in terms of the stories you're telling, but to bypass, like, connecting um, in order to make your day n means you might lose something far more important in the creative process. Yeah. I think that's so cool, and it's really, I mean, I think that you have been working in or adjacent to Hollywood for a very long time, <laughs> so you're really somebody who can speak to the difference between that and the feeling of other sets. Remember my love letters to Mr. Hollywood? Did I do yeah, that on tour? Yeah, you did that on, so when I met you... Remind me, I'm going to put a pin in this. I have a, I have another transparent question. But okay. when I met you, uh, well, I've, I've, maybe I met you before then, but we went on Sister Spit together in 2010, even though you were a Mr. Spit. Mr. Mis we had Mr. Sister and Mr. Spit yeah. in 2010. <laughs> Mr. It was Sister. You it's Mr. Sister. You and Len 
and Lim were all on the same crew. Uh, and you were talking a lot about your project or your work trying to get yeah. a Billy Tipton movie made. Yeah. Um, and how that, like, trying to pitch that to people and them just be like, what? Like, it just go, it seemed like it just went over the heads Way. of executives. I'm sure now, if you pitched a Billy Tipton documentary, people, or, you know, feature. film, feature yeah. film, people would be like, ah! Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start um, taking it out and about. Again. So for people who don't know. Uh, Billy Tipton was um, a jazz musician in the 40s and 50s. Um, who, as he started to become, he was like a really charming performer. Um, as he started to get famous, he he retreated from Vegas um, with his third wife, which was this woman named Kitty, who was a showgirl, and moved to Spokane, Washington, and sort of retired as a performer. Lead performer became a booking agent, and uh, but kept playing music. Had a lot of. Uh, People just seemed to love him in the jazz world. When he died in 1989, it was a big deal that they discovered he was born female. And nobody knew. Uh, he had three adopted kids, and his last wife, who I met, um, didn't um, said that she didn't know. And people were baffled. And, I mean, for myself, as, as a, at that point, I was gender nonconforming, masculine presenting, and I hadn't transitioned, but it made total sense why she saw him as a male and and so the, the idea of truth and and sort of like what is true about somebody versus what the world sees really intrigued me and so i wrote a script with nina landy and it was at a, a bunch of different directors labs and and screenwriting labs and at hbo 10 years ago and i will get, give hbo credit they were with effie brown as my producer um who people might know from last season of project Greenlight. Um, she's an incredible independent producer. And uh, we were um, at HBO developing it. They put, like, development money. Um, it was going. And they were going to let me cast a transgender nonconforming person, which was a long time ago. And then um, the executive left and went to a different executive who had a different vision. And then the picture house closed that was going to make it. So then nothing happened with it. So we took it back. And then it was almost financed again by these crazy people. I mean, that's a whole nother tale. Um uh, that was, I mean, everyone in town loved the story and loved the approach because it's really about, you know, identities. Everyone in this, everyone in the story is either blending or not blending or self-inventing or, you know, so it's, yeah. it's, it's a much larger story, um, which is how I tend to like to talk about identity stuff, which is through relationships and through yeah. human things like hopes and dreams instead of, you know, uh, messaging well, like, my, my second favorite person in that story is Non Earl, who, like, was this woman who was married to a man named Earl. Yep. When they divorced, to show that she was no longer attached to him, she changed her name to Non Earl. So badass. I tried to name my chi- one of my chickens Non Earl. Love and nobody got it. And so people just started calling her Phyllis instead, because they thought she looked like Phyllis Diller. But I knew that her name was Non Earl. Totally non-earl. Because I was like, that's such a fucking awesome person. And she not only divorced him, which no one ever did. She was a dance marathon celebrity. So she was the breadwinner during the Depression era. So she divorced her, him, named herself non-earl, and then took back all the suits she bought him. Good, good. She was like, these are mine. And then found Billy and dressed him in those suits. And that was Billy's first girlfriend. So she was an early feminist. I love that. I mean, can you imagine if I named myself... After an ex-girlfriend. <laughs> I can't even... I'm not even going to say anyone's well, name. we won't even go down non, that road. Non-sprocket. Let's just use, like, a generic lesbian name. Um, last night, 
Somebody in the audience asked a question about casting a cisgendered yeah. straight guy mm -hmm. as a transgender woman. I'm mm -hmm. transparent. Mm -hmm. And from the sidelines, I was always like, well, that just seemed like part of the Trojan horse that needed to happen for mm -hmm. the show to get made. Mm -hmm. Because Jeffrey Tambor is a really big, a really big name. Right. But then you had a really thoughtful answer about that, I, I thought. I did. I think you did. I mean, I... Um, I don't know. But what, is, what were you... No, what, tell what me you, what I said. I, I think... Well, I mean, I have other things written down that you said, but you were talking about how... Yeah, like... Well, maybe other people on the panel, too, were talking about how, you know, it, it is significant to find a 70-year-old actor that can handle... That has the gravitas, somebody said, to handle that story... And Jeffrey's handled it well, but also now is an ally, mm -hmm. like, and has been changed profoundly from this experience, and is taking that out into the world. And yeah, and, um, yeah, I can expand upon. Yeah, that. we expand yeah. upon that. I mean, I, I, and I also feel like, well, a couple of things. I mean, I think first and foremost, what I think people are talking about when they mention that is is the issue of. Uh, accessibility to role for roles for mm -hmm. trans people to get to play fully rendered people like very like you know those kind of roles have been denied and are still in in a lot of casting because of a broken system that's about casting um, for financing and and all of this which I think leads to a lot of really like um, I think sometimes not great movies honestly well, last night. Okay, so we keep mentioning this panel, but we're not saying what it yeah. was. Oh, yeah. You were on two panels last night. Yeah. They were moderated by Jack Halberstam. There was um, the woman, Maya, from Tangerine. Yeah, Maya Taylor. Um, Maya Taylor and Trace Lissette, who's on Transparent, and Sam Chris Fader. Vargas and Sam Fader and Reese Ernst and Zachary Drucker. And is that it? Yeah. There was a lot of people, and it was moderated by Karen Thompson. But, um, and Jack Halberstam, two and, different panels. But the woman from Tangerine, Maya was saying, like, I quote, she said, I'm a prostitute again. Yeah. Like, she just, she was like, yeah, I've gotten yeah. a lot of roles since Tangerine. I cannot tell you how many times people have asked me to be a prostitute right. in yeah. a move, because that's yeah. the part they have written for a trans woman. Yeah. It's a, I mean, which is, there are fully formed, pro we, we know a yeah. lot of fully formed yeah. prostitute stories, but. Yeah. No, it's, it's really, it's about access, and it's about um, centering our stories and, and Jill's talked about this. So what I want to do is, is what I had said in that panel was, I remember from first season, um, Jill's talking on NPR and talking about, you know, this is a story about her parent and Jeffrey Tambor, I don't think was cast for a, any of that star, like financing thing. I mm -hmm. think Jill got to cast people that felt right for the role, which is, I think, why the show is, is so extra brilliant, is that it's really cast um, for the integrity of, of the talent to the characters um, that she's portraying, but that Jeffrey had always reminded her of her parent, and that she was new to trans community. You, you have a parent, you're changed, you know, everyone's changed by, by the family member that changes, and it ripples out, and that, you know, she was talking about if she'd had all the information, it just, there would have been more thought process to it. I mean, that said, there are people, you know, Je Jeffrey's character hadn't transitioned yet. The Season one was a character that hadn't yet transitioned, so it does get tricky in terms of season one, 
you know, even with Laverne Cox, they had her twin brother, um, M. Lamar, uh, play her um, because they didn't want to ask her to, you know, strap down and her yeah. um, breasts and, like, you know, do all of this sort of masculinization of herself. So, you know, I think there's um, there's a bunch of things, but what, what I hear people saying is, is that m- m- more access more you know like let our stories be full not just these you know sideline characters um so that we can fully connect people will then be allowed to connect to us as people as opposed to um you know just uh continuing to be distanced or uh, or us explaining ourselves to them or like the idea of- the idea of it and so you know, so hearing Jill say that in season one, I was like, this is amazing. Like, she's having a conversation and acknowledging her process. And I just, you don't hear that. Uh, it, you know, it's such a rare thing to have a conversation. I feel like... A lot of transparency. A lot of transparency. And I think that that's really uh, uh, so needed. You know, everybody is supposed to have the right answer, or the wrong answer. Or you, you know, you did this. There's a lot of call-out culture. And, and there's a lot of also important things that are coming, that come out of that. But But if someone's growing and changing, I think... That's that's a radical, radical act. And then that Jeffrey has grown and changed. And Jeffrey did say at the Emmys, you know, may, I wouldn't be sad to be the last cisgender actor to play to get an award for playing a trans woman. And I think that again, just like talking about the box, you know, and people getting up and, you know, if it, you know, if you're trying to make change, it has to be from the ground up. You have to build it from the ground up. How you interact on your set, how you interact as an actor. And, and Zachary also talked about, you know, for for Jeffrey Tambor to be not just for a feature film, which is maybe three weeks, six weeks, but for years to be, you know, exploring this female experience of themselves, um, it is going to change you in ways that, uh, I would imagine are profound. And I, so, yeah, so I think it's, um, there's something organic and, and, and I love it. I, I love people in my life, you know, are always people that, um, you know, might say the wrong thing, but they are trying to do the right thing. And I think it's so easy to say the right thing and not actually have your actions match or be willing to make a mistake or fall on your face and grow. Like, so I just, I, I feel very honored to be around people who are growing still and learning things about themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, another thing that they showed last night, I guess thinking about that was this, which I've seen before is this clip about the transformative action mm-hmm. that's happening on the set of Transparent where it's not, it's people in every single department of the show Mm -hmm. there's trans people working in every department like there's trans consultants and writers and actors but there's also people in like the billing department like I love there's just like a shot of this woman like handing out paychecks and rain and rain is actually uh she was working in accounting but this last season she was a director's assistant so she was right next to every director for the and she's a filmmaker a writer and an actress so it's it was actually cool to see people come back yeah and actually get to move in closer to what they're trying to do so then you know, you know, she just had a film come out at Outfest this year that was just amazing, you know, that she acted in and wrote. Um, so, yeah, it actually, you know, is creating this thing and then it's giving access. It's giving all of us a little more ability to make our own work. And, and yeah, so it, it really does trickle down. It feels like it's just changing people's lives and it's... Yeah. I just feel very lucky to be adjacent to yeah. something that feels like a very charmed and magical point in time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a big deal to, um, I mean, you know, being on the Paramount lot, it's, it's such a classic movie studio lot. It's like a twenties 
like Art Deco, whatever that era is, twenties yeah. and thirties, and um, this dog is yelping. It's okay. Um, and to have all of us every time I go through that gate, like that's a big fucking deal. I feel I'm like whoa. Yeah, and it, it yeah, it's gate crashing. I mean, really, and 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 it's profound for me because I come from you know a background that you know it's like nobody was ever going to pay attention to us so we just always you know built our own stage then we performed and then we we were our own audience and we just kept doing that until other people were like hey what are you doing over there it's kind of interesting you know like I, i'm not used to like then but now we get to take that party on the lot and sort of um show that like this is what they this is what is always true is hollywood forever has been trying to co-opt underground and lived lives because when you go through difficulty, you have ambition, you have empathy, you have all of these really rich things. And so that's great for storytelling. But now it's like we're allowed to be involved in it, like behind camera in the writer's room. And so that's a big deal. Hollywood has sort of given lip service to wanting to tell these, uh, you know, difficult stories. But it's always through the lens of otherizing and explaining. And so this is shifting that, that lens profoundly, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that you said last night was about um, authentic storytelling and like the idea that I quoted I quoted you here in my notes with my pencil. He said authenticity is good story and telling our story with humor. You're basically talking about how like, you know, without humor, telling a traumatic story mm. is just otherizing. Yes. And that you're only able to infuse it with humor, be it gallows humor, if you've actually experienced it and you really understand it thoroughly enough to know where you can add the humor. No, it's true. I've been thinking a lot about the difference of of um, stories told from the inside. Because also, I don't do documentary that much, but I've done... The ones I do, I do with my community. And so there's a whole thing about you're not supposed to tell a story. You know, I did a panel for the IDA, International Documentary Association, and there's a whole thing about insider versus outsider perspective. And outsider perspective is supposed to be objective. It's code for, like, a typically cis white male... A filmmaker going into other communities and telling an objective story. Mm-hmm. So obviously, that's not objective. You know, that's a whole framework. And so then, us telling our own stories is like not objective. And I do think that, um, you know, I think about the burden of representation. I think about what I hide when, or what I worry about in terms of telling my stories to a wider audience. Like, what you know, how am I presenting? Like, I worry about that because sometimes it gets in the way of good storytelling. But what I find is that, like, when we're telling our own stories, that irreverent humor, which is key to our survival, we're very comfortable doing. I understand why someone not in our community wouldn't feel comfortable doing that because they'd be oh. like, "I'm not allowed." That's irreverent, or that's that's maybe going to be you know faux pas. And so, yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. I feel like it's the it's the natural companion to surviving trauma that yeah that gets I, left out a lot. I mean, literally, I mean, truly, like, thinking about being in the sister spit van with, like, Allie Levagot, who now, you know, writes for Transparent. I mean, like, she has, beautiful like, stuff. one of the harshest senses of humor that exists. I mean, like, we just went a whole month in the van making jokes about being a human toilet. <laughs> or, you know, I, I don't know. And then, like, leaving the van and trying to make those jokes to people that were not on tour didn't go out very well. But, <laughs> I mean, even when, like, you know, I... I had my dogs, like, both died within a short amount of time with each other. And the home euthanizer came over. Mm. And I just, like, could not stop making jokes. And she was like, yeah, you know, some some people use humor to deal with. (laughs) Like, she came over into this beautiful pink, like, 
pink plushy brand new dog bed to put my dog wishbone's dead body in mm-hmm. and it was like this magical like she's like i'm gonna go take care of her now and i just was like wouldn't it be funny if we looked out the window and you just like threw it in a trash bag <laughs> you just like tipped her out of it into a trash bag and she was like yeah some people use humor to get through I understand it's a hard time, but I just—I mean, Gallo's humor is just—it's my dad. I had it growing up too. My dad was always joking about you know, like um, I don't know, things getting repossessed or you know, see yeah. next week, like just goofy humor. But it was like, it's like a way to to win. You know, it's kind of like if you are you if you're up against a society that has way more power, wit is just a, a, a long, you know, uh, has a long history of sort of being a way to outwit, you know, a way yeah. to survive and a way to sort of win over. Yeah. Um, boring ass society that's trying to crush you and your soul. Uh, so last night, <laughs> Jack at least mentioned just a couple times that you were punk. <laughs> <laughs> and for listeners that do or do not know, you are you are a noted punk. There were some Yelps for you uh, were in a, Tribe Eight. Yeah, you were in a punk band called Tribe Eight. We were so awful. And then when when that was mentioned, people in this audience at USC were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Um, somebody wore a Tribe 8 t-shirt. Evelyn McDonald, a really amazing journalist. Um, but how does... So I guess I wonder, because for me at least, and I think probably also for RuPaul, whose podcast I listen to, punkness... He's a punk. Punkness informs our process because that is what makes it... You understand that you can be irreverent. And like, that's kind of how you got to like, for me at least, like, be like, oh, nothing matters. Right. Nothing matters. Right. But how does does punkness inform your? Do you still identify as a punk, and does that inform your work or your practice? I I definitely identify as a punk. I Terry was, Gross is not going to ask you this question. She is not, and that will be too. So I want to hear Terry Silas Gross. Silas Howard. Uh, so I, <laughs> Please I, I, get me an interview with her and ask her to ask about that. You were involved in the punk rock bit. Okay, so there were blowjobs on stage. Okay. Um, <laughs> But yeah, how does um, punkness inform your work or your practice? I would say I'm punk for life. Um, what does uh, that mean? I, I think that um, it, it's a, a bit tongue-in-cheek because it's fun to say punk for life. But I, I do think that it is. Um, it came out of it came out of a really urgent place. It came out of a very real thing, which was like landing in San Francisco in '89. And uh, in the middle of uh, so many people dying of AIDS, and the the you know, and in, in in the middle of uh, ACT UP and the healthcare movement, and that it, that became a cultural movement of queer nation. So, you know, we really were like um, thrown into, like you know, it is it's crazy to look around and be like, oh, my friend Jason got diagnosed and died in two years. He was twenty three years old, and like Rick Jacobson, who opened the gallery next to the bearded lady got diagnosed and he decided his last two years of his life he was going to curate all these amazing artists. Kathy Opie was one of the shows that he had. And, like, to watch this, you know, you were, like, not fucking around. Like, you you just had to make it happen. You just had to make it happen. There wasn't... You didn't... You really... It, it, it was... The, the only good thing out of all of that grief and loss of people who are so much more badass than any of us, like, I think of the people that that left and, like, all that they could have added if they if we had more time with them. Um, so I think we all carried that kind of urgency of, of them not finishing and, and it just made you feel like, fuck it, you know, we, we can't wait, we need to, you know, we need to, uh, make everything happen and, and it wasn't, um, and I keep saying this, it wasn't like there was a possibility of being successful, like there was no, you know, yeah. so in a way it gave us even more permission to fail, to try things, to 
to be irreverent. I mean, I think the the humor, the gallows humor, also it came from my family and also came from art humor around AIDS and sort of this reclaiming of in the midst of all this grief, a life force that is humor, which is a way to prevail. Um, so I think that that punk came out of that. It's sort of like, you know, uh, nothing matters, change, you know, you could say nothing matters, so fuck everything, or you could say nothing matters, so change everything. And I think that we really kind of lived in that. And and for some of us, if I feel like I did start to see people, you know, if there was no, if you weren't worried about the future because it was sort of like you were watching people get sick and die. It was a fuel, but then sometimes it got a little nihilistic, and I think that sometimes then drug use happened, and a lot of, like, we're not living for the future can also get to be a dangerous place. Um, mm-hmm. So, but I but I think the thing I took a, away from that was just permission to take responsibility for your life and making what you want to have happen happen yourself. And not, ex- you know, like not expecting representation to come from anyone else because nobody gave a fuck. Uh, really about representing the people that were in my world we were way off the map so yeah we yeah producer Ponyo is the biggest nuisance of that this interview your she's, career as a wrangler is just sunk well she's around person <laughs> Ponyo's or she's yeah she's out there she's yelling at the staff she's being very rude I'm so sorry she's really um but uh, there's like a weird acceptance that comes with being punk like, there's a weird acceptance, like, that kind of, like, there's no future. No future, yeah. Of just being, like, it has to happen now. What the now is all we have. There's also pushing back against shame, too, which yeah. I know we were talking about. And I know that Transparent does that as well. And I think shame is really powerful, like, acknowledging shame. I mean, the project that I'm doing, the feature that I'm doing with Antonia Crane about the first Exotic Dancers Union is really about a group of women who refuse to hold shame and sort of what transformative power that happens to that when you just like my my connection to you know it's just it like it's very powerful to say like I acknowledge shame I know it's there I'm okay to talk about it I don't have to you know like it's that I think punk was a lot about that like go towards say the worst thing say the most you know fucked up thing and uh, push 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 against the the rules yeah of accepted behavior is kind of liberating too what do you think is the most fucked up thing that happened on stage when you were in training? <laughs> there's so many. Oh my god, there's so many. There is there were... anything that borders on actually giving you shame? Oh yeah. So what Tribate would do is like, you know, we were this, you know, multiracial band, multi-gendered band. We were like a little, you know, we were all so different from each other. I mean, we would ride in the van and just talk about different things. We would trigger each other. We would, you know, we were like this dysfunctional family. They're definitely my siblings. Um, but, uh, but our whole thing was pushing against, you know, ideas of what lesbian identity was. So I think, in you know, looking back, some of it seems kind of fucked up, but it was like we were pushing against all these things that we uh, weren't allowed to be. Like, you could either be a lesbian or a heterosexual, and we weren't either. So we were trying to create a new thing through, like, wild camp and exploration and, and songs that contradict ourselves. And, and then, you know, Lenny would get on stage and do this thing about... We would, get, we would try to get straight guys to get on their knees and give Lenny a blowjob. And that became sort of a rite of passage at punk shows. Like, if you were punk enough as a straight cis man to get up and, and give that became like a badge of like honor yeah so over in texas it was really hard to get guys to do that um 
Did you have to like hire somebody off Craigslist? We would get a butch or a queer, yeah. you know, a masculine queer person. And, um, and then, uh, you know, and then Lenny, what was amazing is Lenny would get a blow job and like kind of mess with the guy. And, um, and then, and then we'd do, um, uh, we would do, uh, Frat Pig, which was about, it was like a, a feminist revenge song about the practice, retaliation around the practice of gang rape on fratern- by fraternities as a rite of passage, and it was gang castrate. And so it was all like, we're going to go and like, you know, remedy this thing. And then Lenny would um, take a huge knife and like cut his dick off, put it on the knife. This is another rite of passage as if you got hit in the head by the flying castrated dick because then he would go like this and wait, you know, fling it into the air. Yeah. And um, so that was another thing that would happen. Um, and I just love that that uh, that Lenny would get a blowjob and castration. I yeah. mean, just just yeah. the full range of experience yeah. of human experience. Nothing means anything. Exactly, nothing means anything. And um, and so it was incredible. I mean, we we there were a lot of write ups about that whole stage performance and kind of the different representations of queerness that we had on stage and. Um, but there was one embarrassing, I'm just going to say. Oh, yeah. Um, so we we were really, you know, not easy listening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like to jump around more than I really cared about hitting the right notes. So it was messy. I was a huge part of, of contributing to that. Um, but, but really, you know, pretty badass, but especially in the beginning. We, you know, I'd never played. Uh, Leslie had played, but she's like, you guys are off. I'm going to learn a new instrument so I can at least, like, learn with you. And... You know, we we're just messy, and uh, our first few shows, we'd have our friends get up and do like crazy acts, like weird BDSM, whatever kind of acts on stage, and um, for a hardcore, you know, queer S and M crowd. And but one time, our friend Mario, who's an amazing performer, would do these things like dressing up like little Bo Peep with a blow up sheep, and do like whatever antics. Yeah. Well, one time she dressed up a blow-up doll as a as a male and she did a male character and then I think had sex with a knife and the doll and the doll popped <gasps> and and it just went really right also because Mari is such a great performer and so in the context of it was like we went too far in the context of this like queer crowd and I just remembered going up to like one of the, the toughest like femme tops in the crowd and um, she was like like, you could have heard a pin drop when that ended because it was like, I guess the doll didn't look male enough, so then it looked like she popped, but it was a doll. Like, she yeah. popped a, the female blow-up doll uh, and was having yeah. sex. So it, yeah. So she was just like, that crossed a line. And I don't know. It was just a very classic 90s San Francisco. Thank God the internet wasn't around. We oh would my, have been... You'd have been toast. Toast. What did they think? That she was, like, killing a woman on stage? Something like that. I think it just went... Yeah. Performance art gone awry. Blow-up dolls. Guy. Dolls. I just remember our drummer going, "What happened? Did she hurt the doll? Did she hurt the doll?" I just remember Cat was freaking out. She killed the doll. She killed the doll. I can't help but thinking about the it's expense really of of cutting. blow up doll. Uh, well, and then also the the dick throwing the uh, dick around. Everywhere. That sounds really expensive. Well, we had a sponsorship from uh, Good Vibrations. Okay, that makes me so feel it was better. all the like flawed dicks. But when we would go, I feel I feel like anxiety about that. No, that's a lot of money. No, it was like. Uh, Good Vibes gave gave uh, Lenny a huge bag of dicks, but then whenever we'd go across the um, border, it would always be this, it was in a big pink bag, it was like the, just a pink 
bag full of dicks, and yeah. the, we'd go across the border, Canada, and they would just always pull out that bag eventually, and we would just wait, and you'd just see them open it, and you'd see their eyes go really big, and then they'd call over everyone else, and then we'd just stand there and wait. Did they ever? And then they'd eventually find, like, I remember they found Tantrum's face mask. It was like clay. It was a bag. And they thought they found a huge cocaine. I was like, look at us. Are we going to have a bag of cocaine? It just was. Yeah. So they're sniffing this like clay mask. But Well, when I went across the border, mm-hmm. the sister spit and you mm-hmm. caused a problem. Because the tribe. Oh, is- shit. We got. Did you get kicked out of Europe? Was that it? Like you got caught touring in Europe or something? Like yeah. there was something like they almost didn't want shit. you totally to cross the border in 2010. Because your name was associated with a punk band that had tried to... That was Canada? No, it was it was by Niagara Falls, right? Mm-hmm. It was like... No, it was when we tried to cross the border. And that was when they found the big bag of dicks, the, the huge bag of, of what they thought was cocaine, but it was like a mud mask. And then also this punk at our show in Minneapolis beforehand was like, she's this young badass, and she's like, can I store my throwing knives un- under the driver's seat? And I was like, yeah, just remember to break- take them. So she didn't ever get them back, so they also pulled out these, like, massively incriminating-looking, yeah. like, circular throwing knives. I don't know yeah. what you call them. They're, like, throwing knives. Yeah. But they're, like, deadly-looking. So it would just looked bad. And then we had too much merch, so they were, like, ca- mm-hmm. catching us for that. And I just remembered we did a hustle back and forth, and we got them to let us ship something... But yeah, I was still on record for, for yeah. I think, what was a lively conversation after we left that small border crossing. Yeah, like indecency. This was the 90s. Like, there wasn't a lot of... I don't even... I mean, now that's just television. But, but there's know. like a comic show in Canada, and ever, and it seems like such a pain in the ass to go do it. Because right. I've had friends that they've, got, they've gotten their stuff confiscated for being <clears throat> indecent. Right. At the border, like yeah. comics that they're like, oh, so, I mean, just going there, I'm like, oh, it's, it's like... What no, it's terrible. Yeah. We, yeah. I'm teaching at MFA programs. The students never appreciate this because um, they're there for higher education. Right. But I've learned a lot from watching reality TV shows like Project <laughs> Runway about the thing you're talking about, which is like when the designers or the artists or whoever, even on fucking America's Next Top Model, yeah. when they show up, they need... The the pre- the thing is, they have to learn how to express yeah. their truest self, their authentic self as an artist, yeah. while still working within the confines of this thing. Right. But you can see the people who fail are the people that get lost in the confines. The right. people that are so worried about pleasing the judges that they lose their sense of self and the reason they're there in the first place. And this is what I've learned from watching reality TV. And when I frame it like that for my students, they're like, mm, you know, fuck you, I'm here for a degree. But I'm like, well... No, it's, you mean talking about tur- like, turning uh, limitations into creative strategies? Yeah, but also yeah. like the, the, keeping your sense of self and your sense of authenticity. Yes. So like you personally have been working in this you know one world, but you also are like pleasing Hollywood. Right. And now you're getting to do both things at the same time yeah. and you're doing your best work. Yeah. Because you're getting to do both at the same time. Because you know how to do both at the same time. Yeah. Because you've yeah. practiced it for a long time. Yeah, and it is a practice. I think that that's the thing is like, and, and directing's a weird kind of invisible art in that it there's so much going on but you you need it is a collaboration and it's hard to practice it's financially near impossible although it's easier now I liked you know um what was being talked about with make make your own content now and that for me I'm really 
really influenced by younger people's creation of media that's in a space that they are completely have agency within and they're not answering to it's it's very punk it's very DIY you know it's got that spirit do you have tips for them do you have tips like if somebody wanted to make a web series with their iPhone I think um, what are your tips I would say don't be afraid of because I know this is something I had to learn because I've worked outside of systems and outside of structure, I have an experimental approach in general. I, I like to make weird stuff. It's just the way I look at the world. It's just part of who I am. But it took me a long time to make friends with structure and that I think we can still use tools um, and sort of practice uh, amongst ourselves gaining our – I'm a big fan of like making um, writing groups or even uh, scene study groups um, to – to practice work and, and build community and build our tools. So it's not just about doing it. It's about giving yourself the support to get your voice in its best expression. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, I think sometimes things can get rushed or so I think just, but, but not needing to go get an official hire. I went to school to buy time. I went to school after I made a feature. I homeschooled. I surrounded myself with a bunch of really talented people and I just, we just practiced and we just sort of like, you know, so I think that I just, just start making with, with, uh, with your friends, like smaller goals. I guess that's the other thing is to not wait for like a huge, I'm going to do this, this thing. And it's, I think with film, it's like, I'm going to do a series. I'm going to do a feature. I'm going to do, and it makes it really difficult. Or if you're like, you know, I'm going to make something today that is a minute long. And the theme is, you know, uh, this and this, what, mm -hmm. what's going to happen. And so to, just to keep that art of play mm -hmm. as much as possible, because that is also a more affordable way to develop your voice and skill. Yeah. Besides school. Do you have any other last minute tips for young artists or young trans people? <laughs> Not to make it too broad. Uh, just really, I think that, um, I find that being my, my experience of being creative is that it's really challenging and it gives me a lot of opportunities to feel insecure. So I think like really giving myself support, like even if it's, um, anything to support, to give myself permission to be okay when I make a mistake, to be like, Hey, you know what? That thing wasn't great, you know, but I'm going to do this other thing. And I guess for me, it's like a spiritual practice. So that's like a lofty sounding thing, but to give yourself support on other levels, aside from just making work and getting feedback, which is to just connect because I think being creative and collaborating is like kind of an ultimate human expression. And, and so I feel like it, it requires more than just like a deadline and, and feedback and, you know, likes and, you know, God, comments are the worst thing on the planet. So, so I think just building that community and then also some sort of spiritual support for if that's a, you know, that's a tall order. But I think just like giving yourself that kind of room to be like I feel like I come from a world where it's like or I, in the world I'm like I'm wrong I'm not I don't fit this gender I don't fit that I'm used to just being like the shoe's gonna drop and if I you know so I just to find support where it's like so sometimes that makes me feel fragile around making mistakes or I have to defend myself all the time so I feel like for people that have been through you know experiences like that to give yourself support where you make art and you can fuck up and that's okay I'm always challenging my students to make something bad that they took a risk on Mm -hmm. As opposed to something safe that may work. So mm -hmm. that's, I dare thee to fuck up. Dare them to fuck up. Mm -hmm. Do you have any words of support or not support for young trans people? Oh, that was sort of for... That was for everybody? That was for everybody. Oh, they can 
do that and make take risks and fuck up and whatever. Yeah. It doesn't have to just be with their art. Exactly. Just in general. Fail beautifully. Yeah. I think fail beautifully. Fail fantastically. Yeah. I like that. I like it too. Thanks for coming on the Thank podcast. Thank you. Thank you so We're much, George. We are shaking hands. And I'm sorry that I had to call the dog catcher on both of our dogs during this thing. Terrible. But you know that I, I could really, I could really, I mean, Tanya could come in here and do some tricks for you. You see my animal handling skills. <laughs> you, know, you know any tortoises? I'd be well qualified to chew a banana. Could Ponyo play a tortoise? Ponyo that could play a tortoise. Okay, though. I mean, she has a shark costume. She just played a shark at Halloween. <laughs> She has a witch's hat. She's ready for that anytime. She also has a wolf costume. Awesome. Well, now she's barking. She's she's playing a nuisance right now. <laughs> Thank you, Silas. Thank you, Nicole. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Is it Ellery's fault? Ponyo's fault. Definitely Ponyo's fault. I know. Ellery's like, save me. Please save me. I'm going to take you back to the pound. Wait, Ellery, you're going right back out on the street. I'm going to take you back to the neighbor that gave you. Come here, Ponyo. Go out of here. You guys play. He's like, save me from Ponyo. Get out of here. Um, They're such terrible dogs. They're really terrible. Like, they're just barking right again. I'll talk really loud. Okay. Um, What was I saying?